0: As far as your question of job hopping and, you know, kind of opportunity costs, yeah, it's a big thing. Like, the one thing you don't get back in this world is your time, period, End the story. I'm reading David Deutsch, so maybe that actually might be proven false, but quantum physicist, but, but you know, it, it, as far as you're concerned, as far as anyone's concerned, you know, you don't have a lot of time.
1: What's up everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host open office hours. You can register to attend by going to bit.ly.com forward slash A-D-S-O. H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a business-minded data nerd who's worked in the data industry for two decades. That's 20 years. And in his two decades as a practitioner, he's worked on the full gamut of data tasks from statistical modeling, forecasting, machine learning, data engineering, data architecture, and almost everything else in between. He's taken all that experience and started his own venture and is currently the CEO of ternary Data. He's also the host of the popular data show and podcast, the Monday Morning Data Chat, and he also hosts the Data Nerd Heard and a new podcast that just started today, the Joe and Friends podcast. And if that wasn't impressive enough already, he runs several popular meetups, including the Utah Data Engineering Meetup and the Salt Lake City Python Meetup. In addition to teaching at the University of Utah, he's also co author of the upcoming O'Reilly book, The Fundamentals of Data Engineering. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, the boss mayor of the Data Nerd Herd and one-fifth of the Data Heretics, Joe Reese. Joe, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today, man. I appreciate having you. Anytime, buddy. Anytime. Yeah, man. It's a good, good honor to have you on. I know, uh, man, we've been hanging out every Friday for almost a year. Uh, Almost a fun.
0: year now. Yeah, yeah man.
1: It's, it's been. I think awesome I joined you. Uh, I,
0: think, I think I found out about your office hours. What was that? December, kind of around Christmas time. And I was like, let's check this out. just yeah. really cool. So
1: yeah, yeah, man. Even coming and helping a lot of people with a lot of stuff, and like literally changing people's lives and changing the trajectory of their career. So I am uh, forever grateful for your support. in, in that yeah, awesome. Well,
0: yeah. thanks for what you do as well. I think it's a, it speaks a lot to you that you've been taking time out of your schedule, I think as well, and, and doing this, you know, every week and now multiple times a week. So, yeah. so thank you. It's really yeah, cool you, what
1: you're doing. Man. Thank you, man. Thank you. That's, that's enough about me. Enough about me. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about you, Joe. Uh, let's get to know you a little bit better, man. I don't think like, a, I don't think I've ever actually heard kind of your backstory and, you know, let's, let's start at the very beginning, man. Where did you grow up and and what was it like there?
0: Um, kind of grew up in a few areas. So, I mean, I grew up in, uh, I was, uh born in uh, Omaha, Nebraska of all places. So in the middle of nowhere, and if that wasn't cool enough, uh, then I also moved to another, uh, middle of nowhere place in, uh, Lander, Wyoming. Uh, I think it was nine or 10 when I moved there. So, uh, um, that was cool. That was in the mountains in, uh, what was that the late eighties, I think. So It's just kind of this rundown um, town that, uh, you know, uh, I think the steel mill had just closed. My dad got a job there. And so uh, it was cool. But then, uh, you know, that town ended up becoming rock climbing got popular in the uh, early 90s. And then that ended up becoming like one of the best outdoor destinations in the uh, United States. So everyone knows where anyone who does anything outside knows where Lander is now. So it's kind of cool growing up there before and after it got popular. Yeah, man.
1: I drove from Sacramento to Chicago. So I drove through that kind of entire stretch from Utah through, like, you know, past Wyoming and, and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But I uh, did a pit stop in Omaha for, for I think, just one or two nights, man. I really liked Omaha. I thought Omaha was a really, really cool place. Uh, I mean, 311s from there.
0: So that was always 311s from there. It's all you need, yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> Warren Buffett's from there. So <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. That's true. Yeah. Warren Buffett's out there too. And uh, I mean, Wyoming's. Desolate, but beautiful.
0: Well, so I-80, when you when you drive through Wyoming, that's like the best thing. I, it's great for the state because everyone thinks that that's what Wyoming, Wyoming look, looks like. It's just like a um, Tatooine or something from a yeah. Star Wars. But uh, no, if you go north, you start getting mountains like Jackson and uh, the Wind River Mountains. And it's like probably the most beautiful areas in the whole country. But I'm glad I-80 is where it is. People just drive by and they're like, this place sucks. Get me out of here.
1: <laughs> so, uh, look, what were you... Like as a high school kid. Oh, jeez. Yeah. What do you think your What did you think your like uh, future would, would look like?
0: Oh man, uh, high school. Um, it was kind of funny. I I I think it's a mix between like Hunter S. Thompson and uh, Ferris Bueller. So, um, like, definitely uh, spent a lot of time partying, but I, I got good grades. Um, I was actually a class president as well. For a few weeks I I ran as a joke and then I think the joke was on me because I actually won. So and then what else? I did uh like a debate student congress as a speech nerd and skateboarded a lot, snowboarded a lot back in the, when snowboarding was still like a new sport. So just did all kinds of stuff gotten into a lot of trouble. Um so yeah, it was it was a kind of town where I think, you know, in lander where you uh the cool thing to do, I think at the time was cruise Maine. So you just like drive up and down this main street that was really boring (laughs) so i read a lot of books is what i ended up doing right so i think in addition to that that's where i picked up a a good reading habit i think uh to the point i was reading probably a few books a week Um, yeah
1: yeah that's one thing that that you're well known for is uh not only the data engineering know-how but the uh
0: the eclectic reading habit i guess I have a very eclectic reading habit and i yeah. read a ton so yeah. yeah
1: so when did you make the move over to, to salt lake city was that when you started working did you go to school there
0: Nah, man i wasn't working at all i was uh it's climbing so after high school i i'd moved in my senior year actually to bellingham washington to finish up uh high school um and start college early just because uh i was just tired of living in you know how it is when you're a teenager. You, know, you just get annoyed with everything. And I was annoyed with the uh, town I was in. So uh, moved out and moved to Bellingham. And at that point, I was like, well, geez, I, I kind of wanted to go climbing. So I guess I'll move back to Wyoming. Um, so I did. And uh, I just spent my time climbing. That's all I did for a number of years, just rock climb. I had odd jobs. I was a floor installer, worked at a hardware store, uh, did various odd jobs just so I could continue climbing. Um, got some sponsors along the way, so that helped a lot in, in terms of, I think, getting free gear and also just uh, uh, getting a lot of I guess, publicity for whatever that's worth in climbing world back in the nineties. But I entered in Salt Lake I as I was at the outdoor retailer show, which was a uh, big, and it's basically the world's largest outdoor industry expo. So if you're in the outdoor industry for selling skis or climbing equipment or hiking or whatever, you're going to be at the outdoor retailer show. So I as I was visit, visiting some sponsors that's back in Salt Lake had the show and, you know, I kind of Salt like at the time, I think had some weird stigma behind it. it. You know, it was kind of like, uh, it's kind of a square town, kind of boring. And but when I got here, I was like, okay, this place is amazing. Uh, I had like the best climbing I'd ever seen in, in next to a city, um, the best outdoors I'd ever seen. And it was, um, it wasn't a small town, so that was nice. So I decided to, uh, come here for a few weeks. This is in 1998 and, uh, yeah, almost, almost to the, uh, the day actually, and then I ended up just staying here. I've been here since '98, so wow. yeah, that's
1: cool, man. Throughout those years, they kept a little bit of that, that teenage angst because he did eventually get tired of data science and and into <laughs> data engineering. But we're going to get into that in a little bit here. You were in data science before it was cool, so talk to us about how'd you kind of get into the field well i guess you know if anybody wants to find out how joe got into the field uh, you can listen to kenji's podcast because i remember hearing the uh, story there Uh, Mm -hmm. ken's just uh, on the linkedin stream gave us a flex muscle but but you know talk to us about i guess what the industry in general was like before data science was cool what was it like kind of when when you first started out and what drew you to Mm -hmm. this kind of field
0: I mean, it's interesting. Back in the day, I mean, so I got into data in the uh, early 2000s, and um, I was originally going to be an actuary. Actually, I think we kind of share some kindred spirits with that, and that was a field I was going to get into. Because I I think that was um, so. I you know, I I, uh, studied mathematics at the University of Utah. You had a couple options back in uh, you know 2000 2001. You could go and be an actuary you can go work in the government or you can become a professor, or I guess you can go wait tables. Um, it wasn't really, or you can be an analyst. Right. And so my senior year, I got a, you know, a job offer to go work doing a sales analytics at the company that soon turned into doing kind of more predictive modeling and optimization and that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, I, to me, that was just doing like, i had been looking for analytics jobs and I guess I landed that one pretty square and, doing so that kind of work um you know able to impact various uh departments in, in this company and yeah and when i look back on it that that type of work was exactly what data scientists were doing sounds without machine learning because you weren't really weren't doing machine learning to any degree because computers were very low powered back then to say like excel i think had a sixty-five thousand row limit or something back then so i mean <laughs> anything past that would you know excel would stop working so it gives you an idea like how much horsepower you had in your computers it was like none whatsoever so but you know you kind of made do with the to, uh the tools that you had and i'd say that in the late 2000s i i would always been interested in machine learning um you know just trying to teach computers you know how to pattern you know, do pattern recognition stuff i guess um but i just realized you know the hardware wasn't there but around like the late 2000s you notice know, like there's like cloud computing and I, I had an itch to kind of get back into to writing code i used to actually write code when i was younger like in the nineties uh, and stuff growing up. I didn't even tell you that in high school. Yeah. So, I mean, I had like a early um, it's probably one of the first people on the internet. I would say like 92, I had an internet connection because my dad felt really bad for me. So he got me an internet connection. Cause there's you know, like an outside uh, outlet in a small town like that. So, uh, you know, so it's kind of cool, you know, just getting into early networking and uh, bulletin board services and just finding all kinds of getting into like whatever you'd call hacking back then. You know, it's very rudimentary compared to what you'd find now. And I, and I wanted to get back into that, I think, in the late 2000s. Um, I just finished a stint as a chief operating officer as a company at a company. Um, I was kind of bored. I was like, you know, it's it's fun what I'm doing, but I, I really want to get probably back into something more hardcore. And so machine learning caught my fancy. And so um, and I started diving into that. And I would know, say around, uh, there weren't a lot of machine learning opportunities back then. <laughs> it was like, you, know, you talk to people about it. And like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. But you know, I, I was lucky enough to to meet up with an old uh, coworker at a company I'd worked at, and as well as a math professor who had you know thankfully been hacking on uh, this interesting ensemble learning uh, mechanism in his spare time in his basement. So we teamed up. I think around what's it, 2012, around then, maybe earlier. I can't remember. But we were talking about starting a company that would just basically you know you could do automated machine learning. So we a company would give you a file, a user would give you a structured file, you know, you build and make predictions on it, and so that. was cool so i was hired as a a software engineer to work on that right and i think that was when i started realizing very early on that the algorithms piece was actually the the easiest piece um getting raw data and trying to i would say unforeseen raw data and trying to make predictions on that on any data set that's an engineering challenge and very quickly i realized uh machine learning and production isn't just about um you know throwing an algorithm against a data set it's like okay so how do you process the features in such a way that they're coherent through the algorithm in an automated fashion. Um, how do you serve models? Right. What about retraining all this other stuff? So that's, that got my mind thinking about it. You know, this was a super early days. And I guess now some of the stuff is ML ops, um, but that got me interested in data engineering. And then over time what I kept noticing with um, you know, this is about the same time when machine learning was starting to take off in popularity. I think Andrew Ng had open sources, uh, first Coursera class. I think it was a machine learning class. He was teaching an octave, I think. And that got I think the first class got a hundred thousand students, including myself. So this is kind of cool to learn from this guy and he's teaching his class at Stanford and whatnot. So I think after that I was I sold on a machine learning. But again, I realized that there's one aspect that you can do machine learning, but without good engineering, it's not going to really have any hope of doing anything uh, valuable. Yeah, so.
1: yeah, you had a like proper architect's mindset back then. That's, that's kind of what it sounds like there. So, mm-hmm. Kind of before data science was data science, it, it had these other names, like you mentioned analytics or
0: data mining, data,
1: data mining, things yeah. like that. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, where is the science in data science? Is there any science in data science? Is it scientism? That's a good question.
0: That? I don't know. Sometimes I have this saying that data science is neither. <laughs> so it's a kind of tongue in cheek It actually comes back from uh, uh, the climbing days. There's an old uh, kind of tongue in cheek quote that sport climbing is neither. From a friend of mine, John Sherman, but because he's fucking fun at uh, climbing. And I, I but I, I sometimes feel that way about data science. I'm not sure where the science is because it's not really a science in the strict sense like chemistry is a science or like physics is a science. Like the the amount of, okay, so if you're to take uh, a scientific approach, for example, you can put a hypothesis, test it out, right? I see some data scientists do that. Uh, for the most part, I, I see everything except that. <laughs> So it tends to just be a kind of throw whatever uh, happens to stick to the wall and um, hope for the best. So what I have observed and why I kind of pushed back on the, the term data science, and again, I don't really care what, what people call it, call it data science, call it whatever you want, but it just didn't have the rigor that I'd seen in, in other sciences, for example. Right. So that, and it's not really like a, one methodology for it. I think, it, it, and I also noticed that data science started incorporating lots of different aspects of what used to be very distinct um, disciplines in data. BI, for all I know, is is data science. I think it is actually. Um, If I look at data science job postings, analytics certainly is. So it's an open-ended question. Yeah.
1: So when we speak in open-ended questions, like, do you think... Yeah, you know, I, I know you might be familiar with these ideas with, with within philosophy, logic, but uh, you know this problem of induction. Do you think that data scientists need to concern themselves with these type of philosophical problems, problem of induction, ethics, even uh, things like that?
0: Yeah, I think so. Induction is a good skill set to have. Um, ethics is something I can't. I don't think you can avoid. You'd avoid it at your own cost for sure. So yeah, I, I think it's just you know what I what I noticed you know when data science is really taking off like in the early, I would say like 2013 is when you started seeing the groundswell of data science starting to take off. Like I think Kaggle was starting to have competitions around like around that time, or the first Kaggle comps at least, and then it quickly went into like 2015 like when it went to Overdrive. Everyone's like, I need to do machine learning. I need to learn how to train models and all this other stuff, right? But what I think was really missing was all the important questions. Like training a model is one thing, but that's like one aspect of what a data scientist should be concerned with, in my opinion. There's also the question of should you even be doing this? And so I would see a lot of machine learning, especially in the the old days, credit scoring models, for example, just really that kind of stuff. uh, The data sets that were being used, you know, ethically nowadays, I would say you wouldn't be using those data sets. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so, um, and just you know, some of the approaches, I would say, it just—I'm uh, glad that the field's maturing to, to even ask these types of questions. I think it was definitely the wild west for a long time. You can see this in in the, in the big tech companies too. You know, I mean, some brazen approaches by uh, you know certain companies that had their entire service knocked out the other day. <laughs> It was a wild west because I think there was a, people were enamored with the, the potential of data science saying, well, you know, we, we have all this power, so let's just make the world a better place by uh, uh, throwing machine learning at everything. And I think you you now see the end result of some of that when it's not uh, reined in with ethics, um, you know, and just thoughtfulness from the beginning. If, if you're only, but it's the old saying, right, show me the incentive, and I'll show you the outcome. If the incentive is basically just to, you know, make a lot of money at no expense, then what do you think you're going to do? right? Yeah. If there's no consequences, sure, go for it.
1: Skin of the game, right? If you're a data scientist, <laughs> mm-hmm. you got you to gotta have some, some skin of the game,
0: man. Yeah. I mean, if you try to do something, if you take the, the medical analogy to this, right? I mean, if you try to do this as a physician, just, you know, weird experiments on people, I mean, you, at minimum, you're going to lose your license, right? And I feel like that's exactly what happened with society in general, with, with the application of a lot of these algorithms, you know, at scale, you know, in mass production. So... Oh, and, and I don't think it's the uncontroversial thing to say anymore. No. I think when I would say this back in the day, people are like, "You're hey, crazy." Um, Facebook and all these other companies are doing such a great thing, right? And
1: yeah, like that last point you're making, I think everyday scientists should read "Skin in the Game" by Nassim Taleb.
0: That's such a good you know,
1: book. It'll solidify this this concept of um, of what that means, right? Like if
0: mm-hmm.
1: if, if you're out, the one thing he talks about in the book is like the the silver rule: don't do to others what you don't want done to you. So think right. about what you're developing with those algorithms and think about if you would want someone to weaponize your own behavior against you in that particular manner mm-hmm. or, or you know, things like that. Just, just think about that. Kind of talked about a little bit, you, you know, what a recovering data scientist is. Well, not really. We, we talked about what kind of made you Become disillusioned, I guess, with data science. But but, what would you say is a recovering data scientist? Tell me what you mean by that, (laughs) and then talk to me about what the road to recovery has been like for you.
0: Well, I I, I snorted and smoked a lot of data science back in the day. I'm not proud of what I did. I was young. I needed the money, so joking. Uh, No, I think it was. I I can't remember who it was. I think it was uh, Gonzo Ben Taylor's business partner, and I were joking about it because he he felt the same way. And I think we started calling each other reformed or recovering data scientists, and just sort of stuck, right? So, because um, we had the same, we had we had exactly. You, you should get him on your show sometime. This guy's fun to talk to. But yeah, we had a lot of the same observations. Where I, I think there was just this mad rush to get into data science, and we we'd both worked at this original uh, auto ML company, and I think we had a lot of perspectives. And He had been doing a lot of ML before, and I think we just we we're like two peas in a pod. Like you've seen the same thing. I am. I, I don't think I'm crazy, right? And so, you know, that's when I I think, you know, sobriety, as you use the analogy, became an attractive option, (laughs) but the road to recovery since then, you know, it's, it's been fine. I I, I think it was one of those things where I, I felt alone in the wilderness for a bit, so to speak, you know, especially from like 2015 to probably 2019 because everyone was like, why aren't you into machine learning? I mean, you're you're good at it and all this stuff, not to sound like Michael Scott, but you know, it's I don't suck at it. So I'm um, doing it a, a while, but it, it's one of those things where I was like, most of the applications I saw it being used for, I was like, that's not really like a machine learning application at all. You could like make a report and pretty much accomplish the same thing at about a fifth of the time and effort. I just think it was like the, the fact that people were just doing machine learning everything, and everything. And so I just kind of Sort of focusing on the broader picture of just the systems that would enable, you know, machine learning and analytic to function at scale. Because it wasn't like data wasn't, you know, it, it was growing a lot, right? It's like, it's just because everyone's doing machine learning, like, it, it, you know, data engineering was never a consideration. I just think there wasn't really a name for it. I know, you know, early people like, like Jesse Anderson were giving it, you know, shout out to him. I think he's a pioneer in the space in terms of giving it some visibility, data engineering that is. But uh, but yeah, I I think I just turned my attention to the engineering aspects of it, and you know, in the meantime, I did work, you know, at another ML startup as well, and helped them out. And but over and over, I just kept seeing the same themes. It's like I don't think ninety percent of these things you're trying to do ML with, you don't need it. You really don't.
1: So talking about that, you know, you mentioned. We could do BI and reporting, whatever, and get the result in the fifth of a time. Like when these companies are out here hiring, let's just say they, they're out here and they're inspired, they go to a conference and they're like, Yes, yeah. we need to start doing data science. Let's let's start a data science team. Do you think that these leaders in these in these industries, if they're not coming from a data science background already, do you think they know what to do with a data scientist if if they hire the first one?
0: Mm. Tough question. It depends on the background of the person, I would think. It depends if there's very, like, I think, strict needs for a data scientist. But if you just go into it saying you're going to hire a data scientist because you need to, I think that's not a good idea. So I've been in those positions. My business partner's been in those positions, right? Like and I've seen this happen to countless people. You know, you, you you have the credentials on paper to be a data scientist. You get hired, and then you end up just making like dashboards and like data pipelines to build a foundation and that's like precisely, you know, where I've been and what I've seen. So, and I still see this a lot. All the time I'm talking to data scientists on the phone, like, or in some calls now, I guess, but you know, because the, a lot of people, you know, approach me and, and just ask kind of, you know, in confidence, like what's going on? Like, am I crazy here? Am I being like gaslighted or my, is there even a work for me to do here?
1: How do you think that so. negatively impacts a data scientist? Right. Cause I mean, nobody wants to get into a job and then like keep putting every you know, six to, to eight months or whatever, nine months, when they become disillusioned with, with the company and, and realize that they're not doing any data science. Like, what type of negative impact does that have on a data scientist in the long term? Like, does that have the potential of setting you on the wrong path for a career trajectory? Does that have the potential to make you just say, ah, I'm done with data science? What are your thoughts on that?
0: I'm seeing it happen not just with me, I mean, but with others, I think there's just a sense of like, yeah, it's a weird one because there's expectations in this reality, right? These are, I, I just think the expectations of data science got way ahead of where it was and probably where it is for a lot of companies. And I would say, you know, if the company is data native and it has a big need for this kind of stuff, you'll, you'll know because you have to do uh, machine learning at scale in order to like just work as a company. I and mean, that's how Google and Facebook and all these other companies had to do things at scale. They couldn't do it with humans. So but as far as your question of job hopping and, you know, kind of opportunity cost, yeah, it's a big thing. Like, the one thing you don't get back in this world is your time, period, and the story. I'm reading David Deutsch, so maybe that actually might be proven false, but a quantum physicist. But, but you know, it, it, as far as you're concerned, as far as anyone's concerned, you know, you don't have a lot of time, right? So, there's no, I mean, I'm i of the opinion, I don't waste time with people or companies if they're not going to... If there's not a clear outcome that we can work towards, and I would say if there's not clear buy-in from people... You know, I know I'm out as an employee because it's just there's so many other companies where you could you could be more beneficial and I think save your sanity Uh, because you're going to get frustrated. That's the thing. You go home, it's doing all night about how much your job sucks, how much your bosses get it, how much how stupid the company is. I mean, we've all been there, right? It's like I want to make a difference. I don't think it's anybody who goes into a company and says, "Well, I really want to do like a really crappy job." Right. And like add no value and just make this like the worst experience possible for everybody, including myself. Maybe there's people that are like that, you know, but I, I think most people have good intentions, but again, you're up against the inertia of a company typically. Right. And that's not just your boss. Your boss also has things they have to navigate through politics, looking good for their boss, all this other stuff. So you need, I think it's as much understanding the organizational dynamics as anything, I would say the more I've been observing it, the more I think that that is single handedly the best thing you need to do as a data scientist or anyone, any field, really. If you can suss out the organizational dynamics at an employer before you get there, hopefully, the more the merrier. Because again, you don't want to waste your time with people. And they, if nobody wants to waste their time on a bad hire. I mean, that's expensive too. So, but unfortunately, on a good day, hiring is a crapshoot. That's how it is. You can do all the assessments you want. But at the end of the day, like hiring is tough. And the person you hired even today, they may change. They may go through a life event that just like throws them off. I've seen this happen to people. Like somebody seems like they're a great person to work with, and all of a sudden something clicks. And then suddenly there's absolute it's unbearable to work with. And you just gotta get rid of them. (laughs) Or just go somewhere else, you know, depending on the situation. So
1: Yeah. So uh, let's get into your, your entrepreneurial uh, journey now. You mentioned uh, you and your business partner. Like, talk to us about how you started off on that path. You know, how'd you how'd you guys kind of link up and, and decide to to start ternary Data, and, and maybe we can even get the story behind the company's uh, name as well. Okay. Sure.
0: Yeah, I think it's around what 2017. I was out on my own, just doing data engineering consulting, and got linked up with Matt, business partner. Shout out to Matt, wonderful guy. He's my basically my brother at this point. So, but he he you know he's a math professor right? That's his background. So, and he joined the dark side and got into industry as a data scientist. And I think he also saw, he saw the same things I did. Hired as a data scientist and doing, guess what? Data engineering work, setting up pipelines, orchestration, workflows, everything except, you know, fancy algorithms and all the stuff that his, you know, he was supposedly going to be doing. So he wanted to go out and do his own consulting. And my friend introduced us and said, well, why don't you guys just work together? I'm like, sure. Let's, you know, figure each other out see if it's a good fit. And you know, six months later, we started a business and I guess, and we're still around almost three years you know, so, after so.
1: so in, in that consulting kind of gig, like what are some big mistakes that you see companies make when they're trying to build a data science team kind of from the from the ground up or, or just, you know, let's say they already have established data science teams. What are some mistakes that you see them make? Like w- when you get in there, like what are some problems that you just see as a consultant pop up over and over? Hmm
0: let say getting in your team's way. It's a big one. That's a big, big one. So not giving them support. Like giving them lip service of support. Like, yeah, we really like what you guys are doing. Yeah. Can we get more people? Nah. Or, you know, can we get this is support we need? You know, and it's kind of like, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that uh, next quarter. So that's typically what I see. It's just that there's not the support. I, have to, I say it's also not an appreciation for like what they do. No understanding. It's kind of like, well, we have data scientists or they're really smart. They're working on all of our problems and stuff, but... Yeah, you know, so I would say it's just like a lack of appreciation or a recognition more than anything. Oh, so, what, what's
1: what's that kind of a day in the life like for you as a as an entrepreneur, data science, data
0: engineering entrepreneur? Sorry, my kids just got home, so I need to shut the door here. Yeah, yeah, um, no problem. No problem. Yeah. Uh day in the life. Sorry, day in the life of being an entrepreneur. Or day in the yeah. life of. I mean, it's it changed. I mean, when Matt and I were first when we first started the company, I would say until recently it was just the Joe and Matt show, right? So. I, I would handle more of the kind of marketing and sales efforts. He would handle more of the day-to-day client engagements. I would certainly jump in if there's a need, but Matt's a powerhouse. He can do a lot of the work. And and so we, that's how we divvy out the, you know, sort of the the boundaries. And, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would say for anyone who wants to start a consulting company or a business, like, and you think you're going to be doing your technical work, you're going to, <laughs> it's everything except that. So get good at uh, business in general. It's tough. So,
1: so. I can't get good at business, man. Like if, if we don't go to business school, can we still get good at business? And nah, no, you uh, have to
0: get an MBA. It's the only way. To get
1: an MBA, right? Yeah. No, no. I would say actually, actually right?
0: an MBA probably hurts you in a lot of ways if you're trying to start a new business. I think MBAs help you when you're um, operating an existing business, but it turns you into a um, a good operator. I don't think an MBA helps you in terms of understanding how to take advantage of entrepreneurial uh, opportunities. That's what I've seen, and this is knowing a lot of MBAs and teaching at a business school as well, right? Like it's not a knock against an MBA program. I just think it's, it's the right degree for certain types of situations. But for entrepreneurship, the thing you need more than anything is just patience and persistence. Like, and that can't be taught.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. It can be learned though, right? I can't teach it, but you can learn it by going. You
0: can learn it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And and the only way you learn it is by doing it. It, It's kind of like, I I always say, it's like, it's like learning a a dating, like you can read all the books you want about dating. It's not going to help you at all when you actually go on dates, like might actually work against you. So (laughs) just coming across like really awkward, but no, no. I mean, it's entrepreneurship is tough. Right. But I think a lot of it is just, you got to go into the, the right mindset and the right approach. So I've made every mistake in the book. I've had other businesses before, and most of them have you know failed, and I think a lot of it was mine, just me not giving myself a chance to succeed, right? You have these unrealistic expectations of when stuff needs to when you need to be a success. like, I need to be a millionaire by you know I need to make a million dollars in this company by the same next year. That may happen. but the market really determines that, not you. So I mean, as a really wealthy person once told me when I asked him, uh, so how do you make a lot of money? He's like, well, just sell people what they want to buy.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's true. Yep. It's also that hard. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So. Sell people what they want to buy. And I like that. I like that. <laughs> so, so talking about, again, getting, getting good at business. What's well, like a, a like, you know, because time, time is money, right? So if time is money, what's one cheap skill, business skill that, you know, a data scientist could pick up that they could start practicing immediately that will help them kind of be better in, 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 in their business interactions,
0: sales, Dealings. sales, sales, end of story. Because think about it every day, whether you're at a company working, you're talking to, you know, your spouse or friends, right? What do you do every day? You communicate. And you're also selling. You're selling your idea, your version of it. I'm selling you right now on selling. It's just how it is. Sales is by far the biggest skill I would say anybody should have. My kids, right? The thing I try and teach them is how to sell, how to communicate, right? Yeah. I like guess the old, uh, you know, Jordan Belfort thing, like, sell me this pen, right? From Wolf of Wall Street. I um, mean, I think that, you know, they, I'll, I'll let you guys watch it, plus where words in it, but it's a good movie. I think, it, you know, but that sort of thing, like sales is one of the things I would say is just like, that is the skill. If you're going to uh, be in business, it's not your technical chops. I was talking about this the other day with some people. And I think there's a misconception that because you're technical and you have great skills, you're automatically going to have a successful business when you go out on your own. That is far from true. It actually, even in your job, your technical skills, I think account for like 10% of your success, probably less. Your ability to get ahead is about how you communicate, how you network, you know, how you use all the soft skills that you think are lame and unnecessary. Those are the things that get you further, whether it's in business or in your career.
1: So. Sales doesn't necessarily mean just like hand-to-hand, one-on-one sales. It could be it could be yeah. <laughs> presenting. It could be
0: communicating.
1: Yep. It could be writing. Even if you're a really good writer, yep. you can have good written communications. It's just your ability to, to clearly communicate your uh, ideas and, and kind of just put yourself in the mind of somebody else, right? Kind of speak to them.
0: Right. Again, sell people what they want to buy, even in a business setting, right? So I want to convince you that this model works and that it provides accuracy. Great. You can show me the numbers. That may convince me. It may not. Uh, Tell me why it's important. How is this going to make my life better? At the end of the day, people want what's going to make them look better, whether it's at work, whether you're selling to a customer. That customer, for example, wants to make themselves look like they made the best decision when they bought you. That's it. They don't want to look stupid. Same with when they hire you. Nobody wants to look stupid because they hired you, right? And you want to make people look good so they can get the promotion. That's how it works. How you get, how you get ahead in corporations or in a company is you, you find somebody who can be your sponsor, they can pull you up. You can do all the tutorials you want and do all the Kaggle competitions you want, but finding good sponsor and networking and you know, selling yourself, selling your, your capabilities is going to get you a lot farther than any of that stuff. Guarantee you.
1: So let's talk about uh, you mentioned technical skills there, and now we're talking about you know creating value through your skills. You had this awesome blog post about do data engineers add value? So talk to us about that. Do do data engineers add value, and how should we think about a return on investment for the work that they do? And I'm sure that the just I'm putting out there the ROI for data engineers probably 10x that of data scientists. 10.1.
0: Ten point one. So yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I would say that there's uh, there's a couple of threads to, to answering this. So data engineers, any data team really is going to support two functions. You're either going to be external facing, which means you're going to be working on a product that customers use. So think about something like a recommendation engine for an e-commerce app, right, or something like that. So there's a tangible ROI in the sense where did engagement go up through your actions? Was there a uh, you know a feedback loop that generates more money? Or something like that, whatever you consider ROI. So that's easy to calculate ROI. Value is an interesting thing in general to zoom out where people always talk about, oh, I'm going to add value. And like, what, what do you mean by that? Like, you know, make me like feel good. Are you making money? Like, what do you, what, what's valuable, right? I have a lot of things that are valuable to me, but that might not be what's valuable to the company or this initiative. And so define value upfront. Now, of course, when you're in an internal facing data team or data engineer, that's a different story. Cause now say you're supporting internal functions, like making reports, making models and optimize internal processes. Um, this becomes trickier. What's the outcome? How do you evaluate uh, the ROI on that? If you can do attribution costing like ABC activity-based costing, maybe that could help, but that's hard. <laughs> Show me a company that's doing activity-based costing really well. And uh, I'd love to talk, <laughs> especially on data teams. Right. It, so it's kind of like the old saying, like what's the ROI of putting on your socks in the morning? I don't know, 10x at least. But so so how you evaluate it internally is that, okay, so how am I affecting my downstream users? Like if I'm a data engineer, for example, and I need to supply data in a usable format and high quality format to a data scientist and analyst, are they getting the expected data on time when they need it? Are they able to do their jobs or is there a lag? Is crap always breaking upstream? Or our engineers with the applications I've depended upon are they providing data in a reliable fashion to me? So it's all about like SLAs, service level agreements. You know, reducing lead time, reducing uh, defects. So I take a very operational mindset, using kind of lean thinking in, in these cases. I take that in general because that's just kind of how I'm wired. But you know, reduce uh, time to value, reduce lead time. You know, and increase quality. So those are the metrics i use internal facing, external facing as well. But again, just assessing ROI is always tricky. And that's where I, I kind of take issue when people say, well, what's the ROI on my data team? It's like, it depends what your data team is doing at the end of the day. Like if you can attribute the salary to some sort of like tangible output where you can put a dollar amount against that, great. Go for you. Yeah. Good for you and go for it. But if you can't, it becomes tricky. So, and I guess it depends. Then you have to look at, okay, what's the out- output of the end uh, result, right? So if it's a, a data science team, like what are they working on right, and so everything should have a value, but it sometimes it's really murky
1: so I absolutely love that, man. Thank you so much for that. No that's mm-hmm. definitely one that I have to go back and rewind and and listen to that, take some notes on that or, uh, really like that so talk to us now about kind of this this data engineering life cycle I guess I saw this coming from uh, I believe it was another blog post or or LinkedIn post that I saw you right up. It was the data engineering life cycle, and I guess the the different steps that that go into it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's actually something in our, it's going to be coming out in our book. Um, coming, I think, early chapters might be out as soon as next week. So stay tuned for that. Right. Thanks, Sam. So. Right. Yeah, the data engineering life cycle is an interesting one. We'd actually first seen this in the, uh, with Google Cloud, actually. They had a really good life cycle for data within Google Cloud. And so for the most part, I think they were right, except that they got a few things wrong, in my opinion. Just steps are really jumbled and they put technologies under different steps. It's like, this is kind of a hodgepodge. So, zoomed out and, and I thought, okay, so for a data engineer, like what are the things you really need to know? How, what are the steps in, in, in data engineering? And in data engineering, what I, what I see it as is getting data from source systems, doing something with it, making it useful, and then giving it to downstream users, you know, for reports and machine learning and, and stuff like that. So, but the life cycle, right? So it's like source systems is your first one. So getting data from source systems, what's what's that? Well, it could be a, a, an API, it could be a database that's used in your application, ERP systems, so forth. So that, that's the first step. Get data, ingest it as a second step, transform it, and then serve it. Notice, though, I didn't mention storage because that undercuts basically ingestion all the way um, to serving, right? So all along the way, you're storing data in some way, shape, or form. So that's that's a life cycle in a nutshell. It provides a way of thinking about, okay, so as a data engineer, like what areas do I affect, right, up to serving data scientists and analysts?
1: So. So mentioned not mentioned, I, I saw you mentioned this in, in a recent post. Was that is it ELT versus reverse ELT or or <laughs> did, did I get that on? Or you had like some quality no, no, no. Like that with that phrase?
0: What's that? Well, it's an interesting phrase. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure I, I'm friends with the guy who or know the guy who developed it as Tom over at uh, high touch. I think he was the guy who came up with it, but at any rate, like it, it's, it's not sometimes I, t- I take issue with it. I think it's it's a weird term in that it uh, sort of describes what's happening. So reverse ETL right now, basically, like you take data from your data warehouse and plop the results back into your source systems. This could be lead scoring, could be you know, back into Salesforce, for example, so salespeople can get. You know, the best leads to contact and so forth. Yeah, I was on a Kate's uh, dedicated expo yesterday and as in my normal fashion, I just blabbed and I was talking about ELT versus ETL and then somebody wrote BLT and I was like, Oh yeah, bidirectional uh, load and transform. And it's like, Oh God, that's actually like a, like a rain man moment. You just not, not even thinking, you just like blurted it out and just kind of went on my merry way. And it's like, Oh, huh. interesting. So yeah. I mean, it's sort of a tongue in cheek thing. I get that I posted on LinkedIn and got some traction. I got a lot of comments on that and people took issue more that I was basically co-opting a sandwich to describe a data term, which I'm not apologetic about. All data things should be named after sandwiches is would be my edict. So even had some guy named Ruben comment on it and I was like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a good sandwich too. So, but yeah, it turned it I mean, I I said it I was more tongue in cheek more than being serious, but yeah. You know, but maybe it'll turn into a term. I don't know. I think it's just, it's more just, it's more funny just because I see a lot of these buzzwords uh, right now to describe every facet of the data ecosystem. And I just get a kick out of it. So,
1: <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I, I, I saw some of the comments on on that uh, thread that you posted. I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. There's a Robert Sievert. Shout out to Robert Sievert. He, What's up, uh, Robert? He's watching LinkedIn right now. He said uh, the BLT thing was him. So Robert,
0: thank you. He gave me the nice. inspiration for it. That guy's Awesome. Dude, uh, he's, he's a red dude yeah he just joined a kind of a group of men and I really like the guy so shout out so nice. yeah
1: so uh, I was going through your blog man like I really enjoyed reading through some of the stuff I saw oh which stuff. one uh, <laughs> it, it was the
0: Turn our data or my personal one? I have a personal, personal blog yeah, that, okay, yeah. The yeah, personal yeah. one, yeah,
1: personal one. I, th- I thought that was cool. Like how every Christmas uh, you write your kids uh, a letter. <laughs> and, uh, I like the ones you wrote for 2020. Uh, oh, that was a messed up year. But but you also wrote this blog post about this concept of reputational capital. And that really mm. resonated with me. Break that, that idea down first. Break that capital, uh, break that uh, concept down. What is re- reputation?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I got the notion really from, from Buffett, not from him. He didn't like tell me like, hey, Joe, it's a secret of the Universe for you but uh, yeah I mean, uh WB he's a cool dude but no nah, it was it, what, what he did at the beginning of every uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting he shows a video from uh, the Solomon Brothers hearing so he was CEO of Solomon Brothers for a bit and he went through some he went through some trouble to say the least just horrible stuff happened but he shows this video of his testimony to Congress and he says basically in a nutshell you know use a newspaper litmus test is something that you're doing would you want that on the front page of your local paper and then he says, if you don't, if you don't need not fear that advice, you need not fear my other piece of advice, which is if you lose money for the firm, I'll be understanding. If you lose a shred of reputation, I will be ruthless. That's stuck with me, right? Reputation is everything. As he also says, you no, know, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation, it takes 15 minutes to destroy it. So When we started our business, I thought it was interesting. Um, We didn't really care about the money. We cared about reputation. We cared about doing great work, meeting great people, and just, I think, developing good relationships. No, always optimizing for reputation. I think we we felt if we could build that pile of reputational capital, the, the money would follow. The reverse is rarely true, though. In the short term, you can build as much money as you can, but you can destroy your reputation. And then who's going to want to do business with you? So other people who have shitty reputations, I'm sure. But that's not scalable. Right, and that's not the
1: kind of life I want to live. So, so some good tips in there for sure. Good lessons, rather in there. But do you have any tips for for let's say people who are kind of starting out? Maybe they're they're not on an entrepreneurial path yet. Maybe they're just early in their data science career. They're you know just starting their 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 first job as a data scientist, how can they accrue some of this reputational capital? What are some things? Just
0: be a badass, like do great work. The old saying is, you know, show up early, leave late. I think that's true. Not literally though. I think office hours are stupid, but I think that mindset of just going in there and killing it every day That is what sets you apart. You're going to get known for that in your career. Then when when people leave jobs, right? But you got to consider it's like, it's like pollen in the spring. It just goes everywhere, just blossoms and turns into new things. And that's people leaving their jobs and going to new companies. I think they're going to remember those like what this, this person, right? They, they killed it at this job. That's the person I want that follows you. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten opportunities from stuff and people I, I, I worked with like 10, 20 years ago now, right? Opportunities you got to make yourself valuable value worth, but make people's lives better right and it's not just being about the sm- it's not about being the smartest person it's about making people's lives better and making them feel great about you and their experience with you so that to me is reputation and, and you know and not take cutting corners you know not stealing not doing shady stuff that's going to get you in prison probably you can get a good reputation in prison i guess but that that's doesn't really count for much so <laughs>
1: Yeah, I so, guess it depends depends on what
0: depends which, what you're trying to do, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah. So you can be like Prison Mike, I guess, in the office.
1: But, uh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I like that. That's that's yeah, just show up, do the damn thing with a smile on your face, no matter if you don't like it or or you do like it. Just do what needs to be done. Do what you have to do to to, to make things.
0: All the time, man. All the time, and it's just that—that is—it's. And it's not just. I I think there's a misconception that you have to go in there, you know, guns are blazing. It's just like it's a compounding rule. Just be one percent better, and it's the old cliche. Like one percent better is going to make you three hundred thirty some seven percent better each year or something, but it's true, right? So you know, just go in there and make good impacts. Just be and be a nice person. I think that's the other thing. It's okay to burn bridges, though. That also, I think, I should say, if somebody is unbearable and they cheat you, right, or you just feel like they're shady. Who cares? Burn that bridge quick. There's other bridges. You don't need that bridge. So, because uh, you don't want that, you don't want that reputational stain on you either. Being associated with a person who's probably less than you know, reputationally you know, desirable. So,
1: yeah, no, love that. Great, great life advice for sure, man. So, another interesting blog that you got is about science fiction and technology specifically how reading science fiction has made you a better technologist so how is that Well, what's science fiction done for you has it made you a better technologist
0: i mean you can see around corners in a lot of ways science fiction authors do a really good job at imagining the future right most of them don't come true especially when it involves space aliens and going to far away galaxies and you know, with elves and stuff. But I would say, you know, I, I, I was a fan of like cyberpunk, for example. I grew up on cyberpunk, you know, as a kid in the late eighties, early nineties, like neuromancer, all the William Gibson books that devoured those, loved them, still do. Neil Stephenson, Snow Crash. Now you're starting to hear about the metaverse. It's a really good example, right? So Snow Crash, it's about VR, dystopia, not too much like we live in right now, actually, except that we don't have VR, <laughs> but almost everything else in there, I'm like, yeah, that. I read it a few years ago and I thought, yeah, this is shaping up to look like that. Uh, 1984, that's a science fiction, written in 1948. And I would say, yeah, that's that's pretty close to, to a lot of what we have, except, you know, not you know, Jackbooted thugs coming in your door, but geez, a lot of stuff is pretty prescient. I think it drives not only just seeing around walls in terms of technology itself, but also ethics and how you apply technology. So that's why I like it. Uh, I think it's yeah, effective. Definitely.
1: Definitely. Like i watch science fiction. I haven't read much science fiction, but like I'll watch science fiction movies and stuff. So I definitely would need to, I want to uh, pick up something that I, that I saw on TV It's called the foundation by Isaac.
0: Foundation's Adams. awesome. Yeah. You should read that, especially right. if you're into predictions.
1: Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, I was, the the guy's like pretty much a data scientist. Like I definitely want to check. that. Yeah.
0: Out. That's a great book. I read that when I was a teenager and that, that stuck with me a lot. The foundation trilogy is awesome. Yeah. Anything by Isaac Asimov actually is like also awesome. Like, guy was just a machine in terms of writing and thinking, and I, I don't think there's any, been anyone like him since. So yeah,
1: definitely have to check that out. Yeah. So, was, what would you say is the one sci-fi work that's had the biggest influence on you as a technologist?
0: Probably Neuromancer. It foresaw the internet, yeah, right. Um, I still think a lot
1: of. Give us a that? quick rundown, like a quick like synopsis of the of the plot.
0: I mean, it has to do with like a guy who (laughs) spit down on his luck. So he has to, you know, kind of jack in, so to speak, you know, and and a hack uh, to to pay off some debts and stuff. So that's about it. But it was a concept really, you know, he came with the idea of cyberspace, right? That was the first time the the term was used. And So all the other books too that he wrote, uh, Burning Chrome, for example, a a bunch of short stories. That was cool. That just informed like, that's why I got into computers really, which because of those books hacking, all this kind of futuristic stuff, people in skin suits and like, you know, look like the blue man group or something. That kind of stuff had a really big impact on me. Uh, Cause remember I grew I lived in a small town at the time. I had like nothing to do. I had no, no outlets. So I would just like sit there in my own imagination coming up with like, crazy stuff listening to uh, rave music that a a friend gave me like these bootleg cassettes from Manchester radio I think it was Key 103 like a rave station played jungle music and stuff and I just sit there reading these books and listening to that and you know with nothing else to do you just kind of start coming up with your own stuff in your head Um, so books like that were just fundamental and still are and just being on the internet at a really early age and just reading stuff like the book of the Subgenius genius was like another book that I read that had a big impact on me. So if anyone knows who that is, say it say in the comments, I'm curious who uh, is that obscure in their tastes, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was also the, 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 friends I grew up with too. We all, we all traded books. Uh, we're all just a bunch of nerds, but uh, I'd say like, you know, everyone was, was pretty smart. So. Kind of cool. It's
1: like it's, it's crazy how, how you know, like at that age, your friends definitely have an impact on you, rub off on you. I was hanging out with people who were just too busy trying to be like Tupac, getting my ass in trouble, doing stupid shit with them, trying to be cool. Man, I'm like, fuck, man. I wish I had better friends.
0: No, no it was it's crazy. <laughs> and I was talking to my friend, one of my good friends, last night. You know, he's he's one of my best friends. Um, they were talking about like kind of the the, the '90s skateboard scene because we were all skaters as well, and just how basically like, that was like the last time I think you could go have fun because nothing was on the internet then. So you're just, yeah, you know, it was a pre-internet age. So you could just do whatever the hell you want. And like nothing's there for posterity. It was awesome.
1: yeah. But yeah. <laughs> nowadays, everybody's lives are documented. Uh, speaking of like skater, like I loved, I love that skate culture type of shit growing up, like the X games and all that stuff. Like mm-hmm. the, the OG skateboarders were at, like my idols, but it was weird, man. Cause I, I would dress like a skater, listen to like rap and then <laughs> listen to the, the opposite extreme of rap, like just punk rock and stuff like that. No so way. Was really really weird just a really weird kid man and
0: so a really weird, fun man. thing happened last month here in Salt Lake so they had Tony Hawk's vert alert event which was um he so Tony Hawk set up a vert ramp uh free event down in Salt Lake it was cool so you had Christian Hasoy Steve Caballero Bob Burnquist Andy McDonald like all the skaters like the who's who and it was just cool just a skate session vert session of all these guys and it was the coolest thing I'd seen in a long long time so I'm just playing like 80s punk music it was cool
1: so I mean, speaking of music, man, you got quite the setup for those of you who are listening in on the podcast when this is released. Or, I mean, and those of you who are part of the happy hour, you, you've already always see Joe's uh, background. He's got such a dope setup here. What's all this about? The, you got keyboards, you got turntables, you got multiple keyboards. Are you making your music? Do you got like, yeah, a, uh, do you got any undercover Spotify?
0: I used to be a DJ name? back in the day. I used to be a club DJ. I still, I, I still have DJed recently, but not with the book and the business. I just don't have time to put on Soundcloud or go dJ at clubs, but like to again. I think it's really fun, so it's something I've always done. Yeah. so like
1: do you ever just like you know Friday night have a couple of beers and just start like mixing all the time like that yeah
0: all the time. I, it's good because I think especially nowadays being on zoom calls, like the last thing I want to do is start a screen, so I just buy like analog equipment, yeah, so like I just dork around, I'm just I just buy synths for fun nice. and just play. I nerd out on equipment, so I have like boxes of synths everywhere, so and drum machines and stuff. So I don't know. So my office oh. is kind of a um, museum in a way. There's, where uh, posters as you can see, and all kinds yeah. of uh, fun stuff, tank shells, and set lists from Tool. All yeah, kinds I like
1: that. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I love the setup. So uh, are you into like? Uh, I know you 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 always call it deep learning derp learning hurts my feelings. <laughs> I love deep learning, but uh, are okay, you into? Sure. Like, are you into generative models or anything like that? Are you have you researched any of that? To-
0: I can't say I found any utility, but that's just because I don't really have a, a use case for it. But I mean, they're cool. They're cool. So,
1: yeah, yeah, that's something I want to get into. You know, hopefully, I get an opportunity to to work because you know part of the new job at, at Comet is me just creating a bunch of content. So, some content I'm going to create is going to be all around deep learning, and I'm hoping to uh, do some generative music projects. I think that'll be a lot hmm. of fun, uh, and uh, you know.
0: That'd be dope. So, yeah. well, let me know if you, if you come up with it. So, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, so, um, let's do. It. Let's
1: do a question before we jump into the uh, random round. It's a, yeah. a standard final question that I ask everyone. It's one hundred years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for?
0: I think just being you know a good person who showed that you know you don't have to follow the standard script in order to have fun and be successful, right? I mean, that's right. I tell my kids and try and inspire in them. It's just to you know, do what you're good at and do what makes you happy. I think the rest will fall into place. So and what I want to be remembered for, for as well is just, you know, raising great kids and grandkids and great great grandkids that you know followed the same path. So
1: love it, man. I know you're well on your way. And not normally just for your kids, but you're just helping a lot of people
0: every yeah. Year. I mean, that's a lot of fun, right? I mean, that's what it's about at the stage in the career, is just giving back and yeah, you know, helping out the next gen. So. Yeah.
1: I remember seeing a post you wrote a while ago about how, you know, it's awesome at this point in your career that you're able to just kind of selflessly give back to the mm-hmm. community and then help people out. So uh, I know it's appreciated if you guys aren't already following Joe, definitely smash that follow, you know, look him up. He's awesome, dude, man. So let's jump into to the random round. All right. So okay. first question, when do you think the first video, first uh, video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen? When will that happen, and what will that video be about?
0: How many? What's the What's the video with the most views right now?
1: I'm pretty sure it is uh, Baby Shark with maybe nine billion.
0: That is such a good point. Yeah. It's probably going to be something like Baby Shark or like a, a Jake Ball fight that's like on for free or something. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, but I, yeah, Baby Shark. That's surprising, um, but not too surprising as they get played that about a, one billion times alone for my kids. So. <coughs>
1: I haven't, uh, I haven't gotten my kid into the the baby shark stuff yet. He he, for some reason loves cars and is obsessed with garbage trucks. He's only a year and a half, and he's just that's obsessed cool. with garbage trucks. Uh, so I literally just put on like an, an hour and a half thing of just garbage trucks, and he's just running.
0: That, that exists. Yeah, yeah. There are that's crazy.
1: Two hour long videos of just garbage trucks driving, robbing garbage. And, yeah, it's crazy about the shit you find out there. So,
0: yeah, that's cool. <laughs>
1: Who do people tell you that you look like?
0: Hmm. That's a good question. Nobody really tells me that actually. That's a good question. But yeah, I, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> so, like everyone thinks that I'm like 20 years younger than I actually am. I all say that. So yeah. they just think I'm like a teenager. So
1: yeah, definitely. Definitely. that <laughs>
0: Keeping- I'm like 80, by the way, for the audience. So <laughs>
1: Keeping the skin moisturized, Joe, looking good. What song do you have on repeat?
0: That's a good a good question. Right now my kids are listening to a lot of Devo, the old 80s pop band. So I think I that's what I have on repeat right now. But I like Devo because you know, so whatever. Nerd Rock.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I gotta, gotta check that out. I don't think yeah. I've actually ever listened to to Devo. Really cool. So what are you currently reading?
0: That's a good question. I mean, I'm reading David Deutsch's at uh, the beginning of unlike a lot of other books, I think that's gonna take a bit to read through. That yeah. is a that's a you gotta think a lot yeah with that book yeah. which i mean more so than others And in the background but i have citizens it's a book about the french revolution i'm reading database internals on o'reilly liminal thinking is another book i'm reading right now
1: i interviewed dave gray did you know that
0: i believe so actually yeah, i think yeah. you mentioned that yeah yeah Limit um talk to him about that uh, it's a good book yeah it's really book. helpful
1: yeah he's awesome guy too like the the interview got off to a interesting start it took him a while to warm up but then he just started warming up Like the first few minutes felt really awkward like the the most awkward interview i've had you know like for between two ferns
0: awkward or was it uh... it
1: was just it was just his uh his body language was just not you know he just wasn't opening and i was like all right i got to warm sky up somehow but then eventually it, it something clicked and he just he started opening up a lot more and the interview was was amazing
0: across the boundaries. Yeah, Um, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Yeah,
1: liminal thing is good. That's actually free on Audible right now too. If anybody Mm. uh, has Audible premium membership, it's free. But yeah, David Deutsch, man, the beginning of infinity. I listened through it and I was like, oh fuck, man, I can't understand this shit. It's difficult to understand. You gotta read
0: it. Yeah, you don't. You don't listen to a book like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that I'm definitely going to purchase that book. But there's a couple of resources I picked up to help me kind of digest the concepts, just to prime my mind for it. One of them was a interview with Brett Hall and Naval Ravikant, who talk Mm, about the beginning of Infinity. Oh, that's Uh, right. They did that. Yeah. That's a good one
0: have you seen and pro- like one of the smartest dudes if you can get that guy on your yeah. podcast that'd be cool and a hero. like fine <laughs> he's dude. smart
1: yeah dude he's that he's probably like the voice in the back of my head
0: yeah. the other book i read all the time and i just actually it's funny i i own a copy of this but i got another one just like wrap it in plastic oh, and keep it yeah but it's yeah. for charlie's almanac so it's expensive i'll leave it at that but this is if i were to pick a desert island book yeah i would just take like this one not even hesitating
1: I, uh, I bought the book on your uh, suggestion. It's been sitting on my bookshelf, though I haven't got a chance to actually read through it in its entirety. I just I was like, "Holy shit, this book is too fancy for me to read." So I just kind of like have it sitting on the top shelf of my book bookshelf, like just staring me down. I think
0: there's a PDF available of it, so just read yeah. that one. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I just got this one because my other one's kind of dog-eared. It's pretty old, but I, I figured you know uh, Charlie's old at this point, yeah, and please. so having any collectibles of him is probably worth it. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. th- the smartest, to- smartest guy I've ever met by a long shot. The guy is, there's smart yeah. people in this monger. So, yeah.
1: yeah. He's got this lecture, I'm down to keynote speech. I don't know. Is that some university? What do you call that thing? Commencement speech. Yes. Commencement speech that, mm. that he did at a university that was talking about uh, mental models and stuff. And people are like, you should write a book. And then that's where that poor Charlie's on the night came from. But real quick, going back to that David Deutsch beginning of infinity, yeah. have, you, have you watched the Brett Hall? T O K podcast mm-hmm. talk cast. He does just chapter by chapter breaks down, breakdowns of the beginning of infinity and fabric of reality. And I don't know, it, it just for a person like me, when I read a book, I will not only just read the book, I'll watch lectures of mm-hmm. that. Per- well, I say watch lectures, but like presentations, TED Talks, things like that, podcast interviews. Like I'll just be all absorbed in that book from any type of way that I can get it. Uh, what's what's kind of your process mm-hmm. like when you're when you're reading?
0: I read fast. Yeah. <laughs> really fast, but that's, but I retain a lot too. I think it's just I've been reading forever. And, but, so that's that, but I would say for a book like that, I actually take notes and I highlight a lot and, and I journal about things too. If I, there's yeah. a concept that, that comes to mind, like I'll, I'll write my own thoughts on it. Cause I think it's one of those things where you, it's one thing to, to read. It's one thing to passively read. Active reading really involves thinking about the concepts. I think most books can be passively read because it's just either entertainment or infotainment, but something like, like books, yeah you you're going to want to put some time into stuff like that if you really want to get out, you know, what you're trying to put in. So, yeah,
1: you got to wrestle wrestle with those ideas. One book yeah. you recommended to me is back here still, how to read a book. That, nope. that book has been uh, extremely helpful for me <laughs> when I approach a book now. It's really good. Yeah, just, you know, quick note for anybody listening, like the, the basic thing you want to do when you get any book is make sure read the table of contents, go to the index, look at the index, see what's referenced the most or what's, you know, what has the most page numbers, read the, the, the back cover, the, what's that called? The spine
0: or the, i
1: I have no idea what it's called. I can't remember. Publishers blurb, make sure you read the preface and the introduction. And then like the first time you're reading a book, just, you're just skipping through pages, reading a page at a time, maybe chapter at a time, and then go back and do the same thing, but for each chapter, uh, mm-hmm. and that's been so helpful. And when you take notes, like what's your note taking process like?
0: I'm old school, I have legal pads, yeah. yeah, I have piles of legal pads everywhere, so I just take notes, um, just scribble. Yeah, it's not that's- so much that I need to take like, like coherent notes, it's more just like there's an idea, jot it down because that logs in your memory more efficiently than just saying, Oh, yeah, I'll totally come back to that, like never, yeah, so like a pointer to, to memory or something like that, exactly. Right? Yeah, uh, I've
1: recently uh, maybe you recommended this book to me too. How to take smart notes? You know that I like that a lot. I've been trying to implement that in my life. So I'll have just a pile of uh, five by eight note cards <clears throat> by me when I read, and then I'll take, like you know, I'll highlight, and then whatever I highlight, I'll translate it into my own words, and then that gets into put into this box, and then I take what's in this box, and then I put it into uh, Obsidian, and just use like, cool. the the they have bidirectional linking in obsidian um, hmm. that just helps create a knowledge graph. It's pretty, pretty interesting. That's interesting. Uh,
0: one thing I do though, one thing I want to point out for even for data scientists and people who write code, like just having a, a piece of paper that you just jot ideas. Like I always had when I'm writing code, I always have a piece of paper or a legal pad. So I just yeah. write down thoughts, flows, that kind of stuff. Just a tip. It, it works really well. Yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. I used to, I used to, spend money on like the the Moleskine notebook because everybody Oh
0: yeah, a
1: Moleskine notebook. But then I found this thing. I just got it in the mail today. There's a pack of 10 Time Works Wonders these journals that are just as nice as the moleskins, but it's even better because the pages are numbered and not only the pages are numbered, you can create your own index.
0: And That's I cool. bought
1: a yeah, I bought a pack of 10 of these for 80, 80 bucks Canadian. So I'm pretty sure it's a lot cheaper in the US and yeah, I'm excited about That's really cool. I'll give you a link to it. Let's go to a random question generator and then we'll begin to wrap it up. So first question coming out the random question generator is what's the best thing you got from one of your parents?
0: Childhood free from rules. <laughs> so I, nice. I, I, I grew up with very few restrictions on what I could do, but I think that taught me um, self-discipline and independence. So
1: mountains. Sort of solution. Yeah, yeah. Same here, man. I grew up in California and I, I used to to... I mean, we used to pick ocean all the time, but nowadays dude, it's mountains with a lake around. That's that would be my go-to. That's cool. What talent would you show off in a talent show?
0: Either climbing or DJing, one of the two. Yeah,
1: they for the they're for the DJ party. Uh, <laughs> oh, is a good one. What bends your mind every time you think about it?
0: I think organizational behavior. Interesting. Yeah, every, every time, time I think I've got it figured out, I I, I realize that. I don't, and nobody ever probably will.
1: So, Organizational behavior. Break that down. What do you mean by organizational
0: behavior? Well, so, yeah, I mean, you you, you see a lot of companies, right? It's a collection of individually very smart people. When you get them together, it, it sort of takes on a, a life of its own, right? And, and company culture, everything about it. it I, I'm, just, I'm just endlessly fascinated by this because uh, it never works the way it should in theory. So... I'm I'm constantly amazed with things I see.
1: One more. Yeah. What's your favorite piece of clothing that you
0: own? I don't know, man, (laughs) probably this jacket. I'm just kidding. But yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't really have one. (laughs) So I try, I try not to get too attached to things.
1: That's a good way to be, man. Yeah. I spent uh, a couple of weekends just getting rid of
0: shit. Exactly. I just, yeah, same just moved. So like, I, I don't, Obviously, I don't like certain things. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> so.
1: Joe, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online?
0: I mean, so I'm not on any social media except for LinkedIn. So if you look for me on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok or whatever, I'm not there. But you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search my name. And then you can find me on YouTube, Ternary Data, which is uh, my company. Put up a lot of content there. going to be pumping out a lot more content really soon. Courses and tutorials and stuff. And then obviously you can email me at joe at ternarydata.com. As I kind of mentioned, you know, I I do like to help mentor, you know, it's tough for me to do it individually. I would say if you want mentorship, this is more of a PSA, show up to Harper's office. I can be probably be more effective in a group than I can individually. Just my time is very limited right now.
1: So thank you so much. I'll be sure to include all of that, all of that information right there in the show notes and a link to the book and everything when it comes out. Joe, thank you so much for taking time on your schedule. Appreciate you being here. Of course. And as usual, my friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.
0: Hey, thanks, Alfred.